Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I catch up with familiar face and voice on the podcast, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. And we talk about a topic that, frankly, I thought I knew a little bit about, which I guess is probably true, but I learned a whole heck of a lot more. And I think it's a topic that's pretty important for our industry. And based on some of the feedback and comments from FDA on this topic, I think it's something that's going to become more and more important to us in the med device and and other life science spaces. And that topic is clinical decision support software. What is it? Why should we care? Well, I encourage you to listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast to learn more. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And joining me today is Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience and to see you today. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's video has become, I guess, an all too common thing in recent, well, almost years now. But yeah, it is great to see you. Certainly would prefer the face-to-face alternative, but you know, you're in Southern California and I'm in Indiana. It's nice and warm where you are and (laughs) getting toward winter where I am. So we'll deal with it. But anyway, today topic that I thought we could discuss is clinical decision support software. And maybe, you know, a little bit bigger topic, clinical decision support. You know, these are probably great places to start. What is this all about? And then we'll get into some of the nuances and some of the details, but maybe a great place to start. What is clinical decision support and software, I guess, as part of that? Well, sure, John. As always, I appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your audience about a very important and kind of a confusing topic to some people. So what is clinical decision support software? Well, John, why don't we start out with what FDA thinks it is? Okay. And then you and I can talk about whether we agree with them or not. So according to FDA's guidance, and by the way, just setting the stage here for our audience, John, the clinical decision support software guidance, which came out in draft form just about a year and a half ago, is on FDA's number one priority for finalizing in 2022. So this is a high priority area for the agency. And we can talk about that in a moment as to why, at least I think it's a high priority. But anyway, starting out with the definition, FDA says that clinical decision support software provides healthcare professionals and patients with knowledge and person-specific information intelligently filtered. I love that intelligently filtered or presented at appropriate times to enhance health or health care. I'll read that one more time. It's software that provides healthcare professionals or patients with knowledge and person-specific information intelligently filtered or presented at appropriate times to enhance health and healthcare. And maybe we can talk about what you think that definition means and is it a good definition and we can kind of unpack it as we go. Uh, you know, as with most things regulatory and some of the guidances and the verbiage, it's there's a lot of ambiguity, and I'm quite sure that's oftentimes on purpose. But well, I would call that, John, rather than ambiguity, I would say room for interpretation. There we go. Yeah. Or some people might call it room for manipulation. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but I agree with you. There's an awful lot of room, whatever you want to call it. There's it's an awful big room to move around in. <laughs> yeah. I guess as you read that definition, like, well, what does that mean? And that sort of thing. And why, you know, as we oftentimes talk about guidances and regulations and so on. And another question that I suppose we'll get into probably today is 
why now? Why is this suddenly now important? And why is this a priority? And maybe that is a good place to start. Why do you feel like this is suddenly now elevated to the top of FDA's priorities for 2022? Well, that's a great question, John. And I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, there are a growing number of companies that are working in this area. In fact, a number of companies have put out products, online tools, for example, in this area. Perhaps you've seen some of them. In addition, I've got a growing number of my customers and potential customers wanting to play in this space or asking me about the possibility of playing in this space. So I think it's coming you know, higher and higher on people's radar. And as a result, it's coming higher on FDA's radar. Mm-hmm. And so to FDA's credit, they want to get ahead of the story a little bit, because as we'll talk about, I'm sure over the next several minutes, John, right now, much of this is not being regulated by the FDA. FDA says yeah. they're using their enforcement discretion to not regulate. But I'll tell you exactly when that will change, John. That will change when companies put out products that, suffice it to say, provide the wrong kinds of information or inaccurate information. And as a result, people start to get harmed and companies get sued. And that's when that will change. But for right now, you know, what do they say? No news is good news. It's still a relatively new area. And let's be honest, nobody or not too many people have really been harmed. Yeah. But anyway, that I think is why it's a priority. Do you think you would add anything to that list, John? Well, I guess hearing that is a little encouraging that, you know, FDA sees this as something that's starting to become, I guess, more in vogue or have more utility in our industry and is trying to get ahead of it and on top, stay on top of it. So I suppose that's a good thing. One other thing that I would add, John, pragmatically, again, as we'll talk about, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but some of the functions that some of these software products conduct, they definitely fit the Code of Federal Regulations definition of a medical device. In other words, yeah. they definitely you know, will provide a diagnosis or something, which according to the CFR is a regulated medical device. Okay. But what FDA is saying is they're using their enforcement discretion not to regulate these things at this time, mm-hmm. even though they do fit the definition of a regulated medical device. Sort of. And I suppose in those cases where the clinical decision support software does meet that definition of a medical device, I mean, are there existing regulatory codes and classifications for this, or is it kind of depend on the application? Sometimes there are, sometimes there are, but not usually. And the other reason why I think it's not a criticism, but just merely an observation, the FDA is taking this stand at this time with this kind of software is because we don't live in a world with infinite resources. You know, in the ideal world, if FDA had infinite resources, they would regulate these kinds of products. I don't think there's any if, ands, or, or buts about it. But unfortunately, FDA, just like companies, we have to decide where we apply our resources and where we don't. Mm -hmm. And FDA is taking this risk-based approach. And thus far, they have determined that this is a low-risk area. And therefore, it's more appropriate to apply resources to other areas that might not be so low-risk. But as I said before, John, this will change when people start doing, you know, as I like to say, stupid things. But anyway, we'll continue. Right. One other curious thing for me anyway is, I mean, you do a lot of work, not just in device, but also in biologics and pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. I have to believe that there are the equivalents of clinical decision support software and not just device, but also in biologic and pharma. I mean, is that what you're seeing in practice? 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think, John, it's actually more fuzzy than you just make it out. It's not like we have software in the device world and different software in the drug world. On the contrary, there's a huge overlap because many of the software programs that are available now, indeed, some of the examples that FDA cites in their own guidance is software packages that, based on the information that the patient provides, make specific recommendations about the drugs that the patient should consider or go talk to your doctor or that type of thing. So this stuff is already integrated together. Right. Which then begs a different question. Which branch of FDA has jurisdiction on products like this? I mean, is well, it CDRH, CBER, other? Not only, not only that, John, but one could argue if a piece of software, clinical decision support software, which is a type of SAMD, a type of software as a medical device, if it's now pointing to a particular drug, does that now constitute a combination product? Right. This would be a cross-labeled combination product, the so-called E3 combination product. I don't think, as far as I've seen anyway, nobody, at least at FDA, has suggested that these be regulated as a combination product. But from a regulatory perspective, one could easily make that argument. But to be fair, also from a regulatory perspective, one could argue that because FDA is not regulating these things under their enforcement discretion, it might be a combination product, but it would be a unregulated combination product. So I want to get into that more here in a moment. But I mean, maybe, I guess to help me and maybe to help the audience a little bit, do you have an example of what a clinical decision support software does, you know, maybe, I mean, I know you will be generic, you'll leave specificity as far as the products and companies and things like that, but can you maybe provide an example that might help illustrate what a clinical decision software does and and maybe what it does not do? Yeah, great question, John. So just coming back to the definition that we started at, you know, at the beginning, if we were to boil that down, it's basically providing both clinicians as well as patients information to enhance health and healthcare. And as we talked about a moment ago, John, we can interpret that, you know, in many, many different ways. So in essence, what these software programs do, they're essentially telehealth platform. Uh And what they do is they usually ask the patient a series of questions. Sometimes the software will be kind of dumb in the sense that it asks everybody exactly the same set of questions, or sometimes the software will incorporate artificial intelligence. And depending on what answer that the patient gives to one question, then the software will direct them to another question, a different area, something like that. So there's all kinds of different perturbations. Anyway, the software will typically ask the patients questions, collect information about their health status, what kinds of symptoms they might be having. Are they having any pain? Are they on any medications? Do they have any previous conditions? All that kind of stuff. And then they will advise the patient based on the information that they provide that they should go and make an appointment with their doctor, sometimes make the appointment with their doctor sooner rather than later. I have no problem with that much, John. As a matter of fact, you know, as you know, I come from a medical background. I used to teach pathophysiology in medical school. Occasionally, I'll have people come up to me and they'll describe their symptoms to me. And I'm pretty confident I know what the problem is, but I won't tell it to them. Instead, I'll say, well, you should go and see your doctor. Or in some cases, I'll say, you should probably go and see your doctor sooner rather than later. So I have no problem with the software doing that much, John. But when you take it that step further, when the software is actually making a diagnosis based on the information that the patient has provided, you have XYZ disease. That's where it starts to get kind of more, more challenging, if you will. Okay, that's helpful. I was gonna say it reminds me, and maybe this is an example, but you know, quite a few years ago, a friend had some health thing. I don't remember the specifics, and it's sort of irrelevant to what I'm going to describe. Of course, in the days of the internet, and you know, oftentimes that's where we go to search for things. And I remember this friend of mine, she went to did a search, and one of the search results led her to WebMD. And I'm just mentioning WebMD, not because I think it's good or bad, it's just 
that's where it went to. And she entered in her symptoms and that sort of thing. And it produced a list of search results. It could be this, it could be that, it could be this and that sort of thing. And I'm pretty sure they had the disclaimer that said, consult your healthcare professional, yada, yada, so on and so forth. But is WebMD an example of a clinical decision support software? It's an interesting question, John. The short answer to every question in regulatory affairs is it depends. (laughs) It depends. So if WebMD is acting like a textbook, in other words, you type in the diagnosis or a treatment and it gives you information about it, then probably not because that's essentially a textbook. In the olden days, when you went to the library and you opened up a book and this is what you would find. But if the software, as I described a moment ago, goes a little bit beyond that, collects your information, Mm. uh, you don't go to it with a predetermined diagnosis. It collects your information and then it says you have a particular disease or injury or condition. This is exactly what a physician would do. And this is one of the areas, John, from a regulatory perspective, where it's kind of gray area. Why? Because as you know, and as we've talked about many times, FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine. That is FDA condition what to do. The only thing FDA can do is tell us, meaning industry, what to do. And that's what every regulatory textbook says. That's what every regulatory consultant says. But there's a big caveat to that statement that most people do not say, but I do, John. And that is FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine as long as the practice of medicine is being practiced by a person, by a physician, a surgeon, a nurse, a pharmacist. But as soon as the practice of medicine is being practiced by a device, or in this particular case, a software, now all bets are off. So simply put, and I had some one of my recent customers ask me this question, John, if a patient goes to the emergency room and they're seen by a doctor and that they say, I have you know the following symptoms, and the doctor says, okay, you're diagnosed diagnosis is X, your treatment is Y, and so on. Does FDA have anything to do with that? Absolutely not, because that's the practice of medicine being practiced by a person. But imagine this not so hypothetical scenario, John. So at the entrance to the emergency room, you have a little kiosk. Mm -hmm. And before the patient goes into the ER, they sit down at the kiosk and they're asked a series of questions from clinical decision support software. Mm -hmm. And now, and even if they ask exactly the same questions that the physician would ask inside the ER, does FDA regulate that? Well, at least theoretically, yes. Why? Because it's not being practiced by a person anymore. It's being practiced by a device or in this case, a piece of software. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, it presents an interesting caveat that, well, I mean, we can dive into that. But I think curiously, as we've talked today, you know, you and I've talked about general wellness devices in the past. And in some respect, what I'm hearing, if I'm interpreting correctly, is there's aspects of a clinical decision support software that sound very similar to a wellness device. So how do these things compare? Are they the same? Are they completely different? Yeah, are you know, some similarities, some differences? Great question, John. And there are a lot of similarities. One of the biggest similarities is that neither one of them are regulated by the FDA. Mm-hmm. You and I have talked about the wellness exemption before. In fact, I did an entire webinar for Greenlight right. on the wellness device exemption. And basically what the wellness device exemption means is if you have a medical device that fits under the wellness exemption, it would not be regulated by the FDA in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. In other words, no 510K, no de novo, no PMA, no quality management system, no design controls, no FDA registration, no nothing. If we had a medical device that fit under the wellness exemption right now, we could start selling it here in the US this afternoon. Correct. The difference with clinical decision support software is that some of these functions and FDA comes out and says that some of these some functions do fit the CFR definition of a medical device, but that for whatever reasons, be they low risk or what have you, we're 
we're not going to regulate them anyway. We choose, at least for this yeah. time, not to regulate them anyway. So at the end of the day, neither one is being regulated, but for different reasons. And here's another thing to keep in mind, John, as long as your device fits under the wellness exemption, it will stay that way forever. But for companies that are working in this clinical decision support software, I have to realize, and I've said this to many of the companies that I've worked with in this space, you have to be prepared for that to change at some point in the future. In other words, FDA is saying that we are not regulate these products for now. And so, yeah, you can go ahead and put out one of these software programs, but be prepared. I'm not saying that it will happen, but it might happen. And I'm not saying that it, when it will happen, but it could happen that FDA changes their mind and says, we are now going to regulate these things. And you might need maybe even a 510K or a de novo to, uh, right. to be able to continue. Well, but you know, on that point, and you and I have talked both on the Global Medical Device podcast and just when we've chatted before, I think a lot of times people or companies hear, oh, this is not regulated. Therefore, I have carte blanche or free reign you know, to do whatever. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but just because in this case, technically speaking, there might be enforcement discretion applied to clinical decision support software. It is, I think, companies that are developing these products, at least in my opinion, I hope that they're doing prudent engineering, to borrow a term that you've used before, and good development practices and documentation and that sort of thing, because you know it still is an important aspect or piece of the healthcare equation that's being applied. So I hope these folks are developing these platforms and these software in a way that takes into account best practices and defining requirements and proper VMV and all these sorts of things, I would hope. I would hope so too, John. But unfortunately, I don't live in the theoretical world. I live in the real world. You know, I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday. And here's the downside of FDA not regulating wellness devices, or in this particular case, not regulating some, not all, but some of this clinical decision support software. Who is going to make sure that these companies are doing those validations that you are just alluding to? One of the very first questions that I ask companies that come to me in this area is, okay, your software is providing this information, making this you know, potential diagnosis or recommendation or what have you. Well, show me your testing, show me to, right. your evidence to say that it's actually giving the patient the right information. In the absence of some kind of an oversight, basically what you're leaving people do, you know, you're allowing them to do the right thing. And I don't want to suggest that, you know, everybody out there is a bad person or anything like that. That's not my intent here. But the simple reality is that not everybody is going to do that. I'll give you a perfect example, John. One of the companies that I'm working with now, when they originally came to me, they wanted very badly to bring their product onto the market under the wellness exemption. And I had some concerns about that. And they kept telling me about, oh, how safe this is and so on and so on. Look, I said, I don't have doubts about the safety of your device because you've gone to great pains to make sure that I don't want to give too much away about the technology, but what you're doing to the patient is well below the threshold of safety and so on. But the problem is if you bring that onto the market as a wellness device and FDA allows it, it's going to open the door to other people doing similar things that might not take the same approach. And so sometimes when FDA says to a company, we have to regulate your device, it's not because they're concerned about that particular device. It's because of the Pandora's box that they might be opening that might allow other companies to be able to do things without that kind of regulatory oversight. Does that make sense, John? 
To yeah, use another yeah. regulatory metaphor, it's the difference between class one devices that are only subject to general controls versus class two devices that have special or what I call specific controls. The general controls apply to devices across the board, but the class two devices sometimes, and I, in my webinar that I did for Greenlight, you know, on what is a medical device, John, I think I talked about this, or maybe it was the classification webinar or both. I gave examples where we had devices like blood refrigerators, for example, that were class two devices. They were 510K exempt, but they were still class two. Why? For one simple reason, because the general controls under class one were not sufficient and we needed to be able to impose special controls or what I call specific controls on them. So it was sort of a compromise. FDA said, all right, it's not necessary to have a 510K for a refrigerator, but it also, it has to be a, a class two to impose those special controls. I think the regulatory logic that we're talking about here around wellness devices and around clinical decision support software is very much the same. Does that make sense, John? It does. And, you know, as we've been thinking about this through our conversation, just the kiosk at the ER was an interesting metaphor, if that's the right example. There we go. Yeah, because I guess it's reality. It doesn't, it's not a hypothetical here. But I go to a kiosk and at an ER and I answer some questions. I enter some, you know, PHI, personal health information, whatever the case may be. The, the curious question that pops into my head is what happens to that data? Who gets it? Where does it go? That's a good question, John. There's all kinds of patient confidentiality issues, HIPAA issues, and so on. I had a conversation just earlier today with one of my customers about this. I'll be honest, I'm not an expert when it comes to the details of HIPAA requirements, but you're right. There are confidentiality issues that we need to be aware of as well. But even uh, if it's de-identified PHI or information, like is the manufacturer, the developer of the clinical decision support software, what are they doing with that data? And I know that's not necessarily a rhetorical question, but not necessarily in the scope of today's conversation, but it is kind of interesting to think about where it well, is. Yeah. It's a good question. And it, sometimes you can, to use your word, de-identify this data, but other times you can't. Some information is being transmitted, for example, to a doctor's office with the patient you know, name or identification number on it for all the obvious reasons. As a matter of fact, some of these web-based clinical decision support programs that are available right now, they often don't charge the patient until they sign up for a consult with a doctor. Huh. So clearly there's got to be a linkage there in right. order to, you know, to do the billing. So, right. but how they control that information, that I'm not sure. Interesting. But Last FDA thing. does put some boundaries on this, John. I do think yeah. that we need to make sure that, you know, this is not opening up a floodgate here. FDA does put out some boundaries. And if you think it would be of interest, John, maybe we should just tick through some of the limitations yeah, that FDA sure. puts on. I don't think it would hurt. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So in a nutshell, FDA says that if you do any of the following things, that this is probably not going to be clinical decision support software that is exempt under FDA's discretionary or enforcement discretion. The first one is it can't be intended to acquire, process, or analyze a medical image or a signal from an in vitro diagnostic. That's clearly software as a medical. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. So that's a good thing. The second thing, it's intended for the purposes of displaying, analyzing, or printing medical information about a patient or other medical information, such as peer-reviewed clinical studies and so on and so on. So yeah. that one is another boundary. Yeah. The third of the four, it's intended for the purposes of supporting or providing recommendations to a healthcare professional about prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of a disease or condition. And notice that they're parsing their words very carefully, John. They're saying for supporting or providing recommendations. Right. That's short of the CFR definition of a medical device. Right. They're not saying that they're diagnosing. They're saying that they're supporting or providing recommendations. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the fourth boundary is that it's intended for the purposes of enabling such healthcare 
professionals to independently review the basis of these recommendations that the software presents so that there's no intent that such information can rely primarily on these recommendations. In other words, what it's saying, John, is that if the clinician wants to, they can sort of fact check it. They can see, okay, how is the software coming to this determination? But of course, that's going to assume, John, that the physician wants to do that. There's no obligation for the physician. Some physicians might just take what the software is telling them, you know, as gospel and not question it. I would like to think that physicians (laughs) wouldn't do that, but some might. All right. Well, this has been enlightening or helpful for me to better understand clinical decision support software. I guess before we wrap up, are there any, anything else that you think is important on this topic or maybe some key takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think this is an interesting area, both from a technology perspective, as well as from a regulatory perspective. I think it's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. I think some companies now are starting to stick their toe in this water. As I said at the beginning, I'm getting more and more pings from customers about wanting to work in this space. I think we have to be careful. I think there's basic concepts that we have to keep in mind. One of them is that no matter what our software does, we need to make sure that it's doing it properly, that it's doing it accurately. We need to make sure that we have to do some sort of VNV testing and so on, even if FDA is not going to be regulating them right now. Because remember, John, although there might not be regulatory implications here, there are potentially huge, huge product liability implications here. And this is another thing I warn my customers about in this space. If your software tells a patient that they don't have a problem, when in fact they really do have a problem and they don't go to see their doctor or they wait six months to see their doctor and something really bad happens or they're not diagnosed as early as they could. I mean, it doesn't take a JDF, you know, from Harvard Law to appreciate ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. So we have that option. And I'll chime in there too. With respect to VMV, I would also say this is hopefully an obvious use case for usability, hopefully that's obvious, but in the risk that it's not, folks, if you're working on products like this, usability, this is a prime candidate. I mean, I think everything that device is, but this is a definite candidate. I could not agree with you more, John, but again, here's the problem. Like with wellness devices, they're not being regulated by the FDA. So there's nobody kind of looking over the company's shoulder, so to speak, to just say, hey, did you do usability testing? So theoretically, the company could put a product out there without doing any of that. You and I are very much in the same belief the company shouldn't do it. And I think most companies probably wouldn't do it, but maybe there are some either because of naivete or ignorance, I'm not sure, but some people might just not do that. The other thing to keep in mind, John, as I mentioned earlier, is that this is a very dynamic area in regulatory. I see this, you know, FDA using its enforcement discretion for right now, but this can change in a nanosecond in the future. And there's tremendous precedent for this. I mean, if you look at the areas of laboratory developed tests, FDA used their enforcement discretion. They did not regulate lab developed tests until when? Until Theranos came along. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of areas. I mean, I could give you a number of examples where FDA used its enforcement discretion for a while, and then somebody did something that they probably shouldn't have done, and boom, everything changed. What I'm saying to companies now is go ahead and develop your product and put it out there on the market, but make sure you do all that other stuff like the VNV, like the usability testing, and so on, so that if and when it does change, and FDA says, oh, no, 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 you need now a 510K to do what you're doing. It's just a matter of taking all that information that you've already done, putting it into a package 
package, stamping 510K in the front and sending it to the FDA and you're done. No problem. Right. But the other piece of that, I think, I don't know if it's handwriting on the wall per se, but as we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, this topic is a top priority for FDA in 2022. So, you know, is that your sign that, you know, FDA is focusing on this? So it may be enforcement discretion for now, but for how long? And again, that shouldn't be the decision or the thing that influences your decision on what you do and don't do. Well, to be clear, John, literally, it's a top guidance priority for F- uh, okay. finalize yeah. the guidance. However, what I would read into it a little bit further is, and this is just my opinion, but you know, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty right on this. FDA recognizes the potential for problems in this area just as well as you know I do, and therefore they're kind of keeping an eye on it. Yeah. And I would argue that that's a good thing, that that's part of FDA's job. Goes back to, you know, taking this risk-based approach. For now, FDA sees this as a relatively low-risk area. And with their limited resources, they feel that those resources are better applied in other places for now. But when people start getting harmed, or if the bodies start lining up on the side of the road, that's when things will change. Yeah. Or so it seems to me. Mike, I appreciate your insights on this topic. And I think, you know, this is our opportunity to try to get ahead of this and try to help share some key points and hopefully some tips for the industry. To their credit, John, just one very last point. This is an example, albeit a small, one of the infrequent examples, but this is an example of FDA being proactive rather than yeah. reactive. Right. In other words, putting out guidance in an area where the technology is just starting to emerge and become popular, as opposed to, let's be honest, John, in so many times, regulation is created after something bad happens. I know. In order to try to prevent it from happening in the future. So I give FDA credit. You know, it's an area that we have to kind of keep our eye on to see what happens. As I've said before, John, there's no better way to ensure that we will have more regulation in the future than if companies and the people in them continue to do stupid things. But that street runs in two directions. There's no better way to ensure that we have less regulation in the future than if companies and the people in them continue to do smart things. So I don't blame FDA on the amount of regulation that we have or don't have, John. I blame us. Yeah. If we want more regulation, do stupid things. If we want less regulation, do the right things. Maybe that's naive, John. I don't know. But that's my kind of naive view of the universe. I like it. I mean, that feels like that should go on a t-shirt somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on clinical decision support software. Folks, as you probably picked up by now, if you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast for any period of time, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences is the best when it comes to regulatory strategy advice and insights and wisdom. So if you have questions about clinical decision support software, wellness devices, or just plain old medical devices, he's your guy. So reach out to him. And I know he's happy to help provide some guidance and direction for you on the best options and path forward. So Mike Drew's Vascular Sciences. And of course, folks, I hope you know anyway, that Greenlight Guru, we're here to help as well. We have the only medical device success platform on the market today. Well, what is a medical device success platform, you might ask. Well, we have incorporated workflows to help you manage just about everything you need to worry about with respect to your quality management system, with respect to design controls, risk management, document and record management. It's all workflows that are incorporated within a single software platform, a single source of truth. So if you'd like to learn more about Greenlight Guru and our products and services, then I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. And if you'd like to have a conversation, we'd love to chat with you. We'd love to learn about your needs and requirements and see if we have solutions that might be able to help you. So again, that's www.greenlight.guru. 
As always, thank you for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. It's because of listeners like you that we remain as the number one, the top podcast in the medical device industry. So thank you for that. As always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.